listening to the Insight to Action podcast. My name is Donna Jones. My work involves providing transformational insights for decision makers and leaders to really cut through some of the complexity that we have in the world today, both in workplaces and at a global uh, decision making and governance level. I'm excited to be talking today with Robbie Stamp. And I, Robbie, we didn't even talk about how I should introduce you, but um, I came to Robbie through a colleague of, of uh, ours, a mutual colleague, uh, part of the Difference Makers community uh, in the UK. But the conversation today is about AI and ethics. And, and of course, you know, for me, that whole business starts when you're looking at making decisions and we're just sort of unconsciously handing off a whole lot of our decision making to algorithms without making the conscious, the conscious decision around what should be handed off and, and what, what shouldn't, and are there parameters around how AI is used and how algorithms are used to replace humanity, where in, particularly in places where humanity is absolutely not replaceable. So I couldn't have anybody better on the call today than Robbie. <laughs> Robbie, let's, let's dive in. You've been thinking about this topic quite a bit. Yes, indeed. I mean, I, I mean, just quickly, a, a little bit of background, because I think it might be pertinent to what we're talking about. Uh, I, I, I sort of have a, a background originally as a historian. Uh, I, I worked in the media uh, startup company with the late, great Douglas Adams, the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I'm kind of hoping we'll get some good hitchhiker references in as we go here. Um, I've also long been on the board and now run a, a, a company that uh, effectively my mother started. Uh, my mother still works full time. I always say quickly that uh, I was born when she was only a week shy of her 21st birthday. So we're not sort of keeping her nose to the groundstone beyond something which is seemly. But my mother has, I think, one of those greatest of all qualities, which is a, an, an endless curiosity. And the company that, that she and I care about so deeply is, is is fundamentally interested in the nature of judgment and decision making, particularly in complex environments. And as we are interested in the nature of judgment and decision making, we have become extremely interested in artificial intelligence as decision maker in the network of that exists amongst people. And if you're starting to introduce AI into that decision-making network, then I think you've got some very profound questions to ask, particularly maybe about the nature of risk. And by that, I mean, fundamentally, as AI is not human, uh, it is intelligent, uh, but it isn't human. And therefore, fundamentally, it cannot feel shame, guilt, remorse, reciprocity. It cannot be meaningfully sanctioned. And there's a fundamental issue, which indeed Nicholas Taleb explores in his new book, rather conveniently called Skin in the Game, which is that human systems where there is an asymmetry experienced by different parties to an activity and risk tend to blow up. So we have a very profound set of questions to ask around as AI is, is put to work on our behalf in an increasing range of circumstances exposing us both to risk and opportunity. Of course, there'll be many wonderful things that it does. We've got some really significant governance issues, which I think need to be addressed. Absolutely. Now, in our first conversation, you talked about four different categories or four different areas to look at through AI. Can you recall those and, and recount them? Certainly can. There are actually five. There, there are five we're thinking about. 
And I think this 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 comes from asking uh, a question, not is it intelligent like us? The answer it isn't. My view is it will never be. Maybe we can come back to my views on artificial general intelligence and superintelligence later. But let's stay with the immediate, the very practical fact that AI is all around us right now. It's it's at work in a number of organizations and we will have a new set of working relationships with it. So the BIOS AI protocol, we've called it, uh, has two contradictory ideas at its at its core. One is that AI isn't human, but we will have recognizable working relationships with it. So the first question we'd ask simply is, is the work the AI doing advisory? Does it leave space for human judgment, discretion and decision making? So it recommends whatever it recommends, however it recommends it. It, it, it identifies a pattern, a cancer cell. But the decision about what to do, how to respond to that information, how to contextualize the information is with human beings. So is the work advisory? The second question we'd ask is, has the AI been granted authority over any human beings who are effectively now the biological instrument for the carrying out of an instruction given by an AI? If you work for Uber or Deliveroo, the answer is unequivocally yes. You are managed in whole or in part on a daily basis by an algorithm. And the algorithm will send you chivying emails. It will notice if you've been slow as a, as, as, as a Deliveroo driver to accept the delivery of that you know, Thai food order. So you are managed and you have authority over human beings being wielded by an algorithm. The second question, therefore, is that a question of authority. The third relates to agency. And by agency, I mean how much agency does the AI have to commit resource, money, resource in the term of any form of resource, and crucially expose individuals or society or an organization to risk without a human being in the loop. So the world's financial trading markets are a very good example of that. We have granted significant agency to rhythms which trade trillions of dollars a year without human beings in the loop. Um, and it is a battle between algorithms and maximization of the laws of physics and speed of light down fiber optic cables. But there is significant agency. And that obviously becomes an issue if you're looking at autonomous weapon systems, you're looking at cars, autonomous cars. So that issue of agency. And again, one of the things I would say here uh, midway through thinking about these things is these things are not value judgments. So I'm not saying this is a good or a bad thing to be doing. I'm just saying you need to do it consciously. The fourth question is around abdication. What skills or responsibilities have you abdicated to the AI? So let's take driverless cars again. It's a very obvious example. We've all read the article where a journalist says, I've been in a driverless car and I drove for a while or I've driven for a while. And then I went through the moment where I had to take back control. Fine. But the idea that you or I had been driven in a driverless car for 300 hours of problem free driving 
that we would have our hands on the wheel with our attention primed, ready for the moment where the AI goes, oh, Robbie, I'm not sure. Is that is is is, is that raccoon alive? Is it dead? I'm not sure. The, it's a bit leafy out there. It's a bit slippy. Over to you. Well, anybody who's been in a car accident would ever know that one of the things about car accidents is that they happen in split seconds. And anyway, we'll be watching Netflix. So we will have abdicated. And of course, you can take that abdication word and you can have a conversation, as I did with a head of AI at a very big law firm where they've now got AI, which is able, for example, to look over non-disclosure agreements or potentially complex supply chain contracts. That work might have been done by your bright young lawyers imbibing endless caffeine and pizza over, you know, a big 72 hour blitz. But an AI can do it in 23 seconds. But what do you abdicate in terms of the skills you learn through doing that work? And then finally, right up to the biggest abdication questions at a societal level, which are because we can replace jobs, should we? At what pace? Who gets to decide? And with what planning do we do that? So that's another big area, abdication. And the fifth one is accountability. And that is the final thing. AI isn't human. It therefore cannot be accountable in the way in which humans are. And the lines of accountability for the work that it is doing in the organization need to be very, very clear. So those are the five things which are about boundary spaces rather than rules. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the difference between boundary-based governance and rules-based governance. Let's do that. Let's do that because it's a natural flow for one. But it also, I think it brings into sharper focus just the places where we get lazy, uh, you know, as a species. And we, and we just sort of go, well, okay, this is happening and I can be victim to this AI robotics thing or, or I can actually, you know, negotiate my, my place in this world. So, and of course, no place does that come out loud and clear than in the area of governance. Just finished having the conversation with the Global Challenges Foundation where we, we had our submission not selected, which is disappointing because the idea there was to raise consciousness so that decision makers could make these um, these decisions in a more intentional way, but do it in a systemic kind of, um, well, it's a complicated thing. But all to say that uh, we they're the ones that are moving forward, at least one of the projects I'm aware of, is an AI distributed decision-making platform. And so that just brings these questions into sharp focus. When we start making big decisions globally at a nation state level, but on issues that transcend and go right across the planet, we've got to be much more conscious about what we're doing there. So let's talk specifically then about what you, you know, rules versus boundaries. Yes, I, I think this, this, this comes back to a, an issue around dealing with uncertainty and emergence. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Uh, and, and also, I think it's, it's quite an interesting difference between a common law approach and a Roman law approach. So living in Britain, we have common law. We have uh, a law, a body of law, which is built up through intention, action, precedent and review. And in a way, a constant challenge of how's that working for us? as opposed to code law, Napoleonic law, Justinian law, Roman law, which says, is this in the rule book or not? Now, I think that becomes very interesting when you deal with uncertainty and complexity and emergence, because it strikes me that with something like the growing and emerging relationship 
with these other forms of intelligence. Uh, and maybe at some stage we'll nail that intelligent intelligence argument. If anybody's got any lingering doubts about are these things intelligent, we, I think we can put that one to, to bed. But staying with this boundaries and uncertainty and complexity, it feels to me we're in a liminal space. And by liminal, I mean I'm going to use literally it was it was coined by an anthropologist to describe the stage in a ritual where uh, the individual partaking in the ritual is no longer the person they were when they first started it. They are not yet the person they will be when they're finished. They are in a liminal space, a boundary space. And one of the things that's interesting with this in relation to AI is that a lot of science fiction from where people get a lot of their view of AI tends to jump to the stage where a certain condition pertains. So you don't get the drama around the beam me up Scotty transporter with all the poor people who didn't have their atoms reconfigured. You've just now able to beam back up and forth between planets. And we tend as human beings, actually, we're living in liminal space a lot of the time where it's messier, it's more complicated, it's more uncertain. Some, some things happen much quicker than we thought they would. Some things are much slower. So there's much more messiness. And if there's messiness, rules are difficult. Now, that's not to say that there aren't particular areas where, where standards and rules may well be exactly what we should be driving at. But the point about thinking about boundaries is that you, you keep watch on a relatively small number of boundaries, almost like watchers at the gate, very carefully. And the protocol is therefore designed to be able to deal with emergence and uncertainty and complexity. So you can track consistently, is the work advisory? And there are a whole load of issues around bias and confirmation bias and whose data and whose assumptions, and how much you listen to the advice and magical thinking about how sophisticated the advice is. But nevertheless, it's a really important boundary that you cross when that AI has moved from being an advisor to being granted authority. Now, again, it may well be that the granting of authority is absolutely fine. It's not problematic and there's no need to worry about it. But you want to be clear that you cross that boundary. You want to be clear with the, the implications. You want to be clear with how is that authority and power being wielded. So you can drive down and look, OK, now we've moved into that space. What are the implications of that? Agency's the next one. What impact analysis did you do if the stakes are very high for human beings as a result of that agency? So if you take a Netflix recommender, algorithm which recommends to me and my wife that we watch the crown it it, it, it doesn't go to you know my friend karen revoir and say karen you know robbie and sue what do you think crown good bad, good idea bad idea i go yeah no no i know robbie and sue yeah no they're of an age they'll like the crown it doesn't it just goes ahead and recommends the crown and if sue and i don't like it there's no harm no foul but even in what sounds like a relatively anodyne space, supposing it recommends to a vulnerable child the HBO series about teenage suicides because it's picked up certain patterns of behavior, well, then that might actually be slightly more harmful. So even in that space, agency actually needs thinking through. But agency might be absolutely the right thing. It might be that there are things which require the speed of thought and, 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 and action that only an, an algorithm and a, a computer system can provide. So again, it's not a value judgment. So this boundary space 
I think gives us a more flexible way of dealing with uncertainty and emergence than saying there are rules and standards and thou shalt not or thou wilt. And I think that's why we've, we're interested in, in, in complexity and emergence and liminality and something which allows us to navigate that space over time as opposed to trying to do a snapshot where we are now. Now let's build rules, which we find are maybe OTOs redundant, you know, as soon as we've all finally managed, exhausted to collapse over the line, having agreed them. I think one of the areas that, that I've been thinking about that bothers me quite a bit, and first I need to tell a story. Somebody I had, a software developer, an engineer I had in a workshop, his wife had just had a baby, and they were in the hospital room, and in his mind came up the word blue, and he said it out loud, and the, the nurse grabbed the baby and immediately started doing resuscitation techniques, and a seconds later, milliseconds later, the baby turned blue. It was a specific thing that happens with babies, but he had a precognizant awareness that this was going to happen, didn't have control over it, just blurted it out, which was a good thing because if he'd had control and exercised rationality to it, the baby would have died. In this rollout of AI, and if I look at the healthcare sector, and I'll just use that as an example, generally the focus in the healthcare sector is on cutting costs. And, and they'll cut costs using irrational methods to do so. In other words, they're not the highest leverage point for in fact making the whole system more effective. It's a very linear thought process. We'll cut here and not here, and or we'll shave across this, or what, whatever the mechanism is. So in the rollout of AI, I, I have this concern that, and I'll openly admit it, that they will go to nurses and say, okay, well, you know, doctors are the ones, they're the knowledge, towers of knowledge we have in this in this, uh, in this, in this domain, and they know it all, and therefore you're, you're more dispensable. I'm, I'm concerned that unless we're aware of what makes us uniquely human, and where those, that those, those really intelligent, those intuitive intelligences, and that we, we don't actually give much credit for in the world of, you know, thought and data, which has more power, are going to get completely ignored in the decision to apply AI to replace nurses, for example, and, and we'll lose out on those life-saving cap capabilities that come from experience, that come from being able to pick up the meta metadata in, as a sensory faculty that, that humans bring. And to me, that is super intelligence, but it is not necessarily defined as that across the board. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting. And first of all, what a, what a, re what a remarkable story. What do I think about it? I think it's really really interesting and i think that, that in a way also what we're talking about in terms of working relationships is to see this as what should be a consistent iterative process so the application of a blanket ai system which started to challenge replace that intuition experience of somebody who you know has seen hundreds, thousands of patients and notices something about the tiny set of a mouth, which, you know, you know, that that just something goes off in their head about stroke or whatever it may be. I, I think that, that one of the things that we've been is, is we've been too gung ho about the introduction of some of these systems without the, if you like, the control governance mechanisms, which allow you on a very tight review loop to just ask, how's that working? What are we missing? Are we getting it right? Is the AI getting it right? Are they actually spotting patterns 
very successfully, which human beings have been missing, and to understand where that working relationship is actually at its strongest. And I, I, I think this is going to be, if you like, the, the, the daily pragmatic ethics of rolling out AI will be the close attention to the way these systems are introduced in organizations uh, and that you, you, you don't just kind of let them out without, out of the box, so to speak, without tracking these issues. You know, let's take another example from another sphere, which was, you know, the famous story now of the, of the algorithm that was introduced into the parole system in America in certain, certain parts of the states, advising on, you know, who to grant parole to and who not. And funnily enough, it started recommending that because of certain postcodes and et cetera, et cetera, whatever it was drawing its data from, that black people were going to be kept in prison for longer. And it was for a, a, a similar crime to somebody that a white person had, created, had committed. Now, it's shameful, and I use that word advisedly. It is shameful that that system was introduced without the appropriate governance checks and balances and controls. So, yeah, people can come back to you and go, ah, yeah, but there's that research which shows that judges, you know, don't go up, you know, in front of somebody or a parole board, you know, the last one before lunch because they're now, you know, tired and hungry. And there's a lot of statistical evidence that shows you're less likely. OK, well, we get that. Let's correct it. Let's handle that. Let's be aware of it. But but my, I think what we'd argue is that when you introduce these working relationships, what you the ethical thing to do is to keep a very close review over how's that working? Are we missing? Are we missing things? Are we, does the nurse feel that actually by and large, I've now got this AI diagnostic assistant and actually it's working really well for me? Or no, I think actually a lot of time it's missed stuff that I saw. And what you, what you don't want as the hospital authorities is to have introduced that system without doing that work. That's the unethical thing to do. That's the unethical thing to do. And I think just a quick word on ethics. It goes back to this AI not being human. Because it isn't human, it cannot our priori be ethical. The only thing that can be ethical is our governance of it. And I think that there's a lot of magical thinking to believe that somehow we will be able to program in the right ethics into machines and I think that that's really dangerous. Um, now, there will be circumstances in which, depending on agency and so on, you will need to, they will need to be responding in a way which we would recognize as ethical. But the, the idea that there is an ur ethic out there, which some smart programmers in Silicon Valley are going to discover, which, you know, we have not yet as a species discovered an ur ethic, whose ethics Confucian, Buddhist, Islamic, right-wing fundamentalist, libertarian, uh, Western liberal, whose ethics, just as a start. So the idea that, you know, programmers in Silicon Valley are going to, you know, crack what is ethical and what isn't ethical and program it in or even train an artificial neural network to recognize what is ethical and not in any given circumstances. Again, that's one of those ones we've got to watch like a hawk because there's real risk of abdication to that. So it's a very long answer, I know, but it's an answer in relation to the ethics will sit in the everyday, pragmatic, practical 
reviewed deployment in a set of working relationships and contexts where we are taking responsibility for the work that it does. We're taking responsibility as an organization for learning and reviewing the work it's doing and understanding that it is learning. We're learning with it. It's doing the things it's great at. We're doing the things we're great at. And we're not being lazy by thinking that it can do things that it can't or shutting human beings off from doing the things which they're really good at. So now you've raised something that's also bothered me, which is the question mark around when we develop these algorithms and certainly the VW engineers and their emissions control on Volkswagens illustrated how not to do it with respect to um, their pressures to perform an unethical task, essentially. How do we mitigate against programming bias into the algorithms? Because we are human, we're programming these algorithms, it's going to leak through somehow or other. Is there, is there a, a way that we can mitigate the weakness of the humanity around, around inserting bias unconsciously into these algorithms? Yes, well, that's really interesting. And I think if I step back just quickly around that governance issue, because I think it's a really important point. So at, at, at BIOS, we, we, we think a lot about governance and about the conditions you're creating in organizations around decision-making and judgment. You, you, you talked about Volkswagen. I've, I've, I've sometimes imagined a job interview. So imagine an engineer going for a job interview at Volkswagen a few years ago. And maybe she wasn't asked as directly as this, but she's asked the question, why do you come and want to work for Volkswagen? Here's what I can guarantee she didn't say. I guarantee she didn't say, oh, yes, yeah, I've, I've got two, two teenagers. I've got, I've got a 14-year-old and, and a 16-year-old, and they're really deeply, deeply concerned about the environment. In fact, I know they've got, a, they've got a classmate who's got breathing difficulties. They live in a particularly dirty part of town. Uh, they, you know, they've been doing some fundraising for some, you know, some equipment which will allow the school to be able to monitor air conditions better. They're really into it. But you know what? Looking around, I don't care. Because I understand that we get to falsify emissions data around air standards, don't we? That's why I want to come and work for you. It didn't happen. So how, Volkswagen, board, stakeholders, asset managers, onwards, did you create the conditions in which that happened? So uh, 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 that's a really important point when one starts to think about, yet again, this question of the AI is at work. And the magical thinking, which says either the data itself is, if you like, you didn't think through properly the issues around its bias or you're deliberately gaming the system. Both of those are conditions. Both of those are conditions, governance conditions, which you're creating in the organization. So now the algorithm has become another part of governance failure, failure to have a line of sight into the conditions, failure to have a line of sight into the pressures you're putting individuals under in organizations. I was, I was talking with a colleague just today and imagining another scandal, the Wells Fargo scandal, where a number of people, a large number of people, ended up being fired for creating fake bank accounts, charging customers for things they, they hadn't asked for. And again, none of the people at their job interview said, oh, yeah, 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 I want to come and work for you because we, we get to create fake bank accounts, don't we? That's right. And, and charge. Nobody said it. And so you wonder about the acculturation that goes on. And, and if you were tracking sensitively some feedback around noticing that 
at an early stage, people start to say, if you're asking some of the right questions, you're being asked to do things which they're not quite comfortable about or they're not able to raise problems with their, their line managers. And then that tailed off, say, at nine months. Well, it just might be one of those things that you think, well, hang on. Is there an issue here where people are becoming acculturated to something? And I think the reason I've, the reason I've gone down this line of, of thought experiment is that back to this thing, we have these working relationships with these new forms of intelligence. They are capable of being gamed deliberately. But even those people who are gaming it deliberately are themselves as individuals under certain kinds of conditions, pressures. So that's one kind of category of problem. The second category is the is the is the the one about believing that the that the data itself is somehow magically pristine and isn't itself being drawn in the case of parole or something, for example, from, you know, societies which there are maybe got problems with race and problems with those kinds of issues. But there'll be other areas like, for example, cancer, where you don't really have, if you like, those social biases in the data sets. You might have some you know, significant statistical issues which you need to address about false positives and false negatives. But you don't have the same kind of issues around biased data sets as you may do in the judicial parole system. So again, if we go back to the protocol, we go back to, okay, so the work's advisory. So now the key piece of work we need to do is understanding the inputs and the outputs. Maybe we've now got an algorithm which is so sophisticated that when it comes up with a recommendation or a pattern, we've got those explainability issues. How has it arrived at that conclusion? Because, wow, that's quite startling. And if it's not able to describe or explain to us in a meaningful way, and the stakes are quite high. If I accept that advice, there's a lot of very smart people, you know, all over the world trying to crack and understand this explainability issue. How did it arrive at that piece of advice? And of course, if you then go up the scale and you've given it real agency and it's committed resource risk, you might want to know if that didn't work out so well. Well, how on earth did it end up, you know, committing that resource, uh, spending that money, exposing us to that risk? So I think that you've, you, you, the, the explainability issue is linked to data in. Uh, it's also, crucially, the higher the stakes are, the more modeling I would be doing before you let it loose in the system. So if it is going to have significant agency, you probably want to run a whole series of modeling exercises, which kind of, what would it have done? Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Oh, wow. So before we granted its agency, we've done our responsible modeling jobs to before we finally give it the responsibility, say, finally give it the keys to the car and say, yeah, to your T&J, off you go. You do your driving test and you do it very carefully supervised and you do it under a whole set of conditions and you pass some important tests. Now you can go and drive on your own. So don't again ethically introduce this thing into the system without doing those kind of review loops. And then once it's up and running, those review loops need to be kept tight as well. So what you're raising here is, is uh, for me, a lot of interesting questions around the awareness, even at the decision-making level around what, you know, two words have popped up, responsibility and ethical. And that, you know, thematically, it's being in touch with what are your ethics and, and what areas are you, you know, abdicating responsibility and what areas are you accepting responsibility? And I think that's the underpinning for all decision-making. It doesn't matter whether you're looking at rolling out AI or not. It, it's, it's very much 
pivotal around those two two questions that you you have to self-referencing anchors, if you will, what I would call anchors, you know, is, is what is the impact of my decision ethically? You know, is, is this going to cause harm? And if so, you know, how do I feel? What responsibility am I accepting for that? You know, those are the areas I think that we have to look at well beyond AI. Well, that's, I, I think it's spot on. And I think, again, it's why the approach we're talking about and exploring and starting to explore with clients is you actually have got an awful lot of frameworks for already dealing with and thinking about these things. But there's a fundamental new wrinkle because they potentially do have these forms of intelligence. And I think also the you know, they, 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 they're not a, it's not just turning on and off your thermostat. If it is committing hundreds of billions of dollars on behalf of an organization, if it's making medical diagnoses, which are now going to be acted upon, well, those issues, the stakes are raising all the time. I think there's another interesting thing about accountability. Accountability can come to mean who gets the blame. Heads will roll. And I think that when you have those cultures in, in human systems, you drive risk into the system. Because inevitably, you don't create the space if people make mistakes to be able to put their hand up and go, actually, I've made a mistake without feeling what well, if I'm if I put my hand up, I'm going to get my head kind of my hand bitten off or I'm going to get my head chopped off. So if, if, if it's all about accountability to blame, heads must roll, as opposed to the way we like to think about it, which is consistent review to remedy, um, consistent review to make better to understand, okay, that went wrong. And yes, if it was absolutely egregious and somebody was in receipt of information which they completely failed to act on or they they bullied or they harassed or they, you know, absolutely hold them accountable, blame them, fire them. Absolutely. You know, I understand that. But if you create a culture where, back to human beings for a while, if you, for example, you create a culture in which there's a very, very heavy don't bring me problems, bring me solutions culture, we would always ask the manager in that situation, well, then what's your work? And they'd go, well, I've got this great team. And then we don't get that. But what's your work? In fact, is your work not precisely now to deal with a problem or a mistake that's very wisely being by an individual or a team brought to your attention because something has now gone outside of the discretionary limits they're comfortable with? There's a complexity, a relational complexity, a reputational complexity to the problem, which they feel that you need to know about. Now, if you're a manager, if people say, oh, no, no, don't take it to Robbie unless you've done the 50 slide deck and solved the problem. I'm adding precisely zero value to the organization. Now, if I'm consistently a team is consistently bringing me problems and I'm thinking, I really don't get why these what am I getting wrong in the way that I'm tasking them with the work? Are they overwhelmed by the work? Do they have the capability to do the work that I'm asking them to do? I can review that process. So AI is not unsusceptible to thinking of some of these kinds of issues. How do you task it? There will be a stage at which you are entrusting the purpose, the value, the strategy, the ethics, the tactics of an organization to its work. Have you thought about the complexity at which it's actually working as opposed to the complexity that you'd like it to be working at? And then what are you doing to review its outputs? So I think there's an enormous amount by taking this lens of demystifying it and putting it into a network of thinking about working relationships, accountabilities, um, review mechanisms, decisioning rights, which are actually very familiar to us. 
And then understanding some of the things that are particular, which we need to be vigilant about, which is that it cannot feel guilt, it cannot feel shame, it cannot be meaningfully sanctioned, and therefore it cannot be accountable. You as a board, you as a government, however sophisticated it gets, are the accountable body. Robbie, a wonderful conversation. I, I really appreciate this. Where do people go for more information on BIOS and, and your work? BIOS.com, B-I-O-S-S.com. Uh, that's us. That's the website. I'm, I'm out there a little bit. I've done a few TEDx talks on uh, the notion of digital souls and digital persistence and actually something specifically on grief as well, just human human grief and grieving. So uh, those are a couple of TEDx, TEDx talks that I did. But uh, BIOS.com is the place where you can go and find out more about uh, our approaches to these things. Thanks so much for being on the program. Wonderful conversation. I have a feeling we're going to pick this up again as we want, as, because this area is moving fast. So we're going to be watching things. We're going to be, I think, you know, we're going to be doing what I know uh, needs to happen, which is that constant monitoring of how's this showing up, what are the conversations, where is it, where is it tipping? And so I, I know we'll be back. Thank you very much. I've really, really enjoyed it. It is so exciting and intellectually challenging, and it's so, so important. It's really important to think around these issues. And of course, many, many, many smart people are thinking about it. But we just hope that this is a, a valuable lens as these working relationships emerge in the now and the years and the decades to come. I believe that Wells Fargo is the classic case of creating the conditions for unethical behavior and then punishing the employees for making decisions within that context. And then, of course, following up with by taking absolutely no responsibility for it, except under duress and force. I get asked the question, what, what do you mean by conscious decision-making? Well, I can tell you that's the epitome of unconscious decision-making. It's the epitome of not being able to observe those conditions, being able to do the review loops that Robbie talks about in this, in this program. So I, I hope in listening to this, you can see that there's some serious value to being able to take a broader view, see what's going on, make the observations, and ask those questions. Is it protocols over rules? Do, do we do it here and not here? How do we actually make those decisions so we don't fall into the category of feeling victimized by our own decision-making, but instead are able to make these more conscious choices. They're up front and center. They're not background, they're foreground. We're able to look at them. I think that's a tremendous opportunity we have in front of us. I do hope this has given you some good food for thought. Certainly the conversation with Robbie did for me because these things have been sort of sitting in the back of my mind, as you heard. Please share this and help promote the program if you liked it. You'll find me on Twitter, connect there, E-P-D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones. And on my website, from www.fromincighttoaction.com. And I'm also, of course, on LinkedIn. My work involves bringing transformational insights plus awareness to decision-making so that you can work with complexity with greater ease and, and accuracy. Thanks for listening.